morning, church. How's everyone? Huh? Here? Am I loud? That sounds loud to me. Be careful, I'm very loud. I'm extraordinarily loud. Oh, man, it's good to be with you guys today. Yeah, you might want to back my volume off just a little bit. I don't want to blow anyone's hair off. It already happened to Bruce a few years ago. Um, where did that come from? I don't know. Pastors can't have fun, right, Cameron? Anyways, uh, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, I'm excited this morning. I feel a little, I don't know, nervous or something. Or I've been praying that, uh, you know, as you preach and preach all the time and you get used to preaching, you, you can get kind of comfortable with it and, and you can kind of lose that sense of God's awe and awesomeness and power and, and that sense of reverence for him. And, uh, and my knees are knocking a little bit today, and I think that's just being nervous about preaching God's word, and that's a good thing, right? And, uh, and so I don't know what's going on, but I hope it's that. I've been praying for that. I'd be praying that I just wouldn't be so accustomed to preaching that I'd just get up here and be like a robot and fly through it every week, which I tend to do. And uh, we need to have a holy fear of the Lord, especially when, uh, when you open this up and begin to teach it. You're speaking for God. So anyway, so I'm a little rattled this morning, so that should be exciting. Um, we are currently studying Acts, the book of Acts, and uh, we, uh, we're in chapter 13, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, how, how many of you guys were here last week? You were here on Sunday, and didn't Colby do a marvelous job of expounding on God's word? Man, I just enjoyed that sermon so much. Just, it was neat to, to just sit there and be ministered to. And, uh, and man, God rocked my socks last week, man. I didn't know what to do when I walked out of here. I knew I needed to repent of some things, but uh, that was good. And I, we're thankful that God has sent men that are capable. Uh, well, he's equipped them to this church to preach the gospel, and that's good stuff. So we are, we are a blessed body. You are blessed people. I hope you, you realize that. I'm a blessed man here. So anyways, a couple of weeks ago, we focused on verses 4 to 8 in chapter 13 of Acts. Just a little recap, as Saul and Barnabas went about preaching the gospel in Cyprus, they came to the capital city, Paphos. Uh, while in Paphos, they were invited to present the gospel before the lead senator or the island, El Presidente, if you will, Sergius Paulus. While, this is kind of where we were, while Paul was preaching, the court astrologer, uh, and Luke refers to him as a, Jewish false prophet. His name was Bar-Jesus or Elimus. He began to argue against Paul, argue against Barnabas as they presented the gospel. Why? Because he was trying to lead Sergius Paulus away from the truth. That's what the text says. That's where we left off and that's pretty much where we're going to pick up today. I'd like to pray one more time before we do this and let's just get right into it. Are you ready to get to work? Man, there's just nothing quite like reading and studying the Word of God, right? It's an amazing thing. we got to pray beforehand. Lord, I need your help. We need your help. We are, many of us are, I would say, are Christians who have been redeemed and saved, but we still have a sinful nature. We're still not prone to wanting to listen to your truth at times and wanting to apply it, wanting to live it out, or even for guys like me to teach it. That's a difficult thing at times. My flesh gets in the way of all that stuff. Lord, you've got a message for us here today. I don't have a message for these people. You've got a message for them. I pray that you would speak it through me. 
Guard my tongue. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill this place with your Holy Spirit. Fill these people with your Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit, we cannot understand your word. And you have an important word for us today. We are going to look at an incredible passage of Scripture. We're going to hear the message of the gospel, which is what we aim at every Sunday. The saints need to hear it. The lost need to hear it. I need to hear it. Preach it today, Jesus. This is your church. This is your word. These are your people. I'm your servant. You are the pastor. Speak to us. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. I'm getting pumped up already. I'm going to explode. Well, according to Acts 13, this was Saul and Barnabas' first experience with opposition to the gospel during this particular missions trip. They're on their first missions trip together. They were sent out by the church at Antioch. And what we've read with Elimus Bar-Jesus when he fronted them and interrupted their preaching, this is the first bit of opposition that we've seen on this trip during this missions journey, during this church planting endeavor, because that's really what they went to do, wasn't just to preach Jesus and have a big revival and leave a bunch of new Christians out there to fend for themselves. They went out to plant churches or to support smaller churches. But this is their first bit of opposition, this Elimus. This is their first bit of opposition. And there is an incredible principle truth here. And that principle truth is that the gospel, preaching the gospel will it was back in the day, now is, and will always be accompanied by opposition. When the gospel is preached, there will be opposition. It's guaranteed. Absolutely guaranteed. Why? It's a message of hope. It's a message of peace. It's a message of love. It's a message of redemption. Why? Why would anyone be offended by a good, loving, graceful, merciful God who steps out of heaven to come and redeem a bunch of people who don't deserve anything from him other than wrath and justice. Why would anyone take offense to that? They do. Why do they oppose the gospel? Why do we? Why do people oppose the gospel? I think 1 Corinthians 1.23 provides a stellar, a perfect, an amazing answer. You heard part of it read. It says that when the gospel is preached, it is received in either of three ways. Three ways. It is received as a stumbling block. It causes people to stumble. It is received as foolishness. Foolishness. Or if you go down a little bit at the end of 23, it is received as the power and wisdom of God. Three ways. Stumbling block foolishness or the power and wisdom of God. Now I'm going to expound on the first two. I want to talk about stumbling block and I want to talk about foolishness a little bit. I want to give you the best sense that I can of what's playing out in chapter 13 with Elimus and what's happening and what his true problems were here. Let's take a look at stumbling block first, number one. Stumbling block is a cool way of saying offensive. It's just a, another way to say that the gospel is offensive. It's a stumbling block. It causes people to trip up. It causes them to stumble. It is offensive is what it is. 
Why is the gospel offensive? Why do some stumble when they hear it? Well, A, the gospel is offensive because it says we are all sinners. That's a driving point of the gospel. We are all sinners. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that people do not think of themselves as sinners, do they? I certainly didn't. I knew that I had some problems, but I didn't think of myself as a sinner before Christ. Just thought, hey, I've got some good things about me. There's some things that I need to work on. And maybe with a little psychotherapy or whatever it is that's out there, I can get a little help. Maybe I can become a better person. But the fact of the matter is, most people do not like to be thought of as sinners. In fact, I've had people defriend me. I don't know how I became friends with them to begin with on Facebook. They defriended me because of my openness about our sin. I had one guy tell me I had, I had never stayed friends with somebody on Facebook. Well, like that really matters. I never stay friends with somebody on Facebook that calls me a sinner. Well, this guy obviously had a very high opinion of himself. He didn't think he was a sinner. Well, most people don't think that they're sinners. And one of the things that plays into that is that here in the U.S. we are exposed to, pounded with, annihilated with about 3,000 ads a day that say you're a good person, that you can improve, that you're worth it, that you deserve the best. Isn't that the way that it is? With all of the marketing strategies and things that are going on there? Well, when's the last time you saw an ad where you're watching your guys pointing in the camera and said, you're a sinner. You won't even see that in a church service on TV anymore. That's pretty sad. People believe they are good. Even the vilest of sinners think they're good or have a potential for good. So the gospel becomes a stumbling block to many, those who actually think they're good. It becomes offensive. It is offensive to tell many people that they're a sinner. And the gospel makes it very, very clear. B, the gospel is offensive because it says very clearly that we cannot save ourselves. Man, that we are utterly hopeless. People do not like to hear that they cannot save themselves. That's offensive. Why? Because they believe they can save themselves. Most people function and operate according to a scale. The good outweighs the bad. God's got to let me in. Peter's going to usher me in, slap me a high five, throw me a banquet. Why? Because all my good stuff is piled higher than the bad. That's pretty much what people believe. And so they think that through their good works and through their kindness and their tolerance and acceptance of people just as the way they are, whatever it is, they pretty much believe that they can save themselves. They believe their good works will get them into heaven. They believe the good they have done will outweigh the bad, which will get them into heaven. But the gospel says that our efforts and good works Everything done apart from faith in Jesus Christ is no more than a filthy rag. See, the gospel's offensive. It's a stumbling block because it says, you're a sinner, you can't save yourself. Those are two primary things. You get those two things wrong, you've got a, a weird, funky, worldly gospel. Those, those are primary truths to the gospel. And they're offensive truths to many. See, the gospel is offensive because it says salvation is through Jesus alone. No other route. 
No other prophet, no other person, no other God of the little g or thing can deliver a person to heaven, can redeem and save. Only Jesus has the power and ability to do so. Only him. Religion will not bring you into heaven. Good works will not bring you into heaven. Niceness will not bring you into heaven. Tolerance towards others will not bring you into heaven. Muhammad will not bring you into heaven. Buddha will not bring you into heaven. Joseph Smith will not bring you into heaven. Charles Taze Russell will not bring you into heaven. No one but Christ is what the gospel says. The gospel says there is no way, other way to heaven except through Jesus, period. Radical exclusiveness to Christ. That's it. It's just, it, that's just it. It's just all pointed to him. The exclusivity just takes people off. It's a stumbling block. There are no other options. You must do as the gospel says if you are to inherit the kingdom of God, inherit heaven. You must come to terms with your own sin. You must be made to realize and come to the realization that you have a great need for Jesus Christ as your Savior and believe that he has forgiven and cleansed you through his cross and resurrection. If you pursue heaven via another route, you will come up way short, period. You will remain on the broad road to destruction and eventually be made to pay for your sin debt through suffering for eternity. That's what the gospel says. People despise the gospel because of this exclusivity. Exclusivity. They just, it just takes them off. They, they want their own route. They want their own path. They're, they're okay with a little bit of Jesus, but i got to add a little bit more of this to it. One of the things that really gets me in the Christian church that's always circulating is Jesus plus works, Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It's all Jesus, all the time. That's the proclamation of the gospel. If you've ever heard a gospel that doesn't say it's all about Jesus, it's all through Jesus, you've heard a false gospel. And guess what? That's just offensive. That's offensive to people that are striving. That's offensive to people that are investing in other religions. That's offensive to people that are depending entirely upon themselves. It's reality. Number two, foolishness. Foolishness here basically means silly. The gospel is silly. It's foolishness to many. Why? The gospel is thought of as foolishness because of its supernatural characteristics. Natural, unregenerate people live by sight. They embrace what they can see. They embrace what they can touch. They embrace what they can prove. In so many ways, they are like the Sadducees, those religious, ancient religious leaders who were with the Pharisees back during the day of Jesus. They rejected, the Sadducees rejected all things supernatural, and so many people do that today. Ponder these supernatural gospel truths for a moment. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a regenerated believer. I'm, I'm a Christian. And even when I read these things, my flesh says, Really? And the Spirit says, yes, and I say, <laughs> you're right. Think of these supernatural truths. These are gospel supernatural truths. Gospel is a supernatural message. It's all centered around a supernatural person, God. Listen to this one. 
God left heaven and came into our world. We call that the incarnation. Are you serious? God. There's a God. Okay, first of all, we've got to start with a God. And then we're talking about this God who created all things, whatever. He actually stepped out of heaven, his domain, his home, and came into our world. He came down here. Well, for so many people, they just think that's silly. They think it's silly that there's a God. They think it's silly that God would actually incarnate, come into the world, become a man, God, man. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. Another one, Jesus was born of a virgin. Huh? Born of a virgin. That means she's never had those kinds of relations with a man, which means she couldn't be pregnant. And, uh, uh, huh? You see, so many in the world hear that and they say, how could someone be born of a virgin? Unfortunately, there's men that call themselves Christian pastors out there that reject that truth. Rob Bell, others. Can't figure out why. And see, how about Jesus is both God and man, the hypostatic union. Some of you have heard that term, theological term. Wait a minute. Jesus, this Messiah who came, was born of a virgin. He, he's, he's fully man and fully God? Yeah, that's what the gospel says. That's a supernatural truth of the gospel. Well, that just sounds... Silly to me, that sounds foolish. How about D, Jesus lived a perfect life without sin. Never did anything wrong, never told a lie, never snagged a candy bar, never robbed one of his, you know, his brother's lollipop, never punched his sister. He had, those, he had siblings. Never did any of those things, never talked back to his mom. Sweep your room, Jesus. Ah! Right in the middle of playing Call of Duty for crying out loud, Mom. You never sinned? Really? Yeah, that's what the gospel says. He was without sin. <coughs> e, Jesus, <coughs> pardon me, performed countless miracles. At the end of the book of John, it says that he did so many things. There's not enough books in the world to contain all of them. I think John's using a little hyperbole, but at the same point, he's trying to illustrate a point. Jesus did an enormous amount of miracles. Healed a lot of people, raised people from the dead, multiplied fish and bread, turned water into wine. That's one of my favorites. You run out of that stuff at a wedding, not good. Bam, Jesus is there, hooks it up. Probably the best wine they ever tasted. Never wanted to go back to Gallo. It's over, right? I mean, these are things he did. Now, the Gallo wine's not good. There's three Gallo employees in here right now that are leaving this church. I'm like, how dare he? <laughs> Gallo's fine. It's in my budget. He performed countless miracles. And to some, they say, what? Miracles? Miracles don't even happen, man. If it can't be proven scientifically, it doesn't exist. It's not true. How about F, Jesus, God, right? Same thing. Died on a cross for our sins. He died on a cross and paid a sin debt for me? First of all, I don't see myself as a sinner. Second of all, how could God die? <clears throat> G, Jesus, God again, right? Rose from the dead on the third day. Nobody rises from the dead, man. I'm a mortician. I'm into science. I've seen it. It just can't happen. I mean, this is what swirls in people's minds. To, to them, these supernatural truths are silly. 
H, Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. He floated up there. That's about the height that I can get. How can he float, ascend? What? Really? I mean, that's just, that's just silly. Floated up there? Was he flapping his arms? I mean, this is the stuff that swirls around in the carnal mind. <clears throat> How about I? Jesus has been appointed as judge over the living and the dead. Oh, so what you're telling me is this Jesus who did all these other things, God, man, born of a virgin, all these things, God came to the world and died on a cross and all of that, you, you mean to tell me that he's actually going to judge the living and the dead? All people are going to be judged by him? <laughs> and last, Jesus will return on the clouds says in scripture, with fire to defeat his enemies and consummate his kingdom. I saw somebody on Facebook the other day totally scoff at that truth that Jesus is coming back. He was actually attacking a guy named Ray Comfort, who's a, an apologist. And he said, you actually believe that he's coming back? People just think that's silly, that he's going to come and, you know, and come back and, and do business. All of these things, these supernatural truths of the gospel, which are essential to the gospel, essential to our lives, all of these things are counted as foolishness by carnal and regenerate people, especially intellectuals, especially those who are into science and other things. Not everyone, but most. They're just silly to them. The supernatural gospel is nothing more than a silly joke to them. Yeah, for some it's a stumbling block, but for others... It is just plain, flat, silly, just fairy tale, Hollywood. Superman has a better chance of doing something in this world than this Jesus who really never came and is not coming back. That's what they think. These are the most common reasons why people oppose the gospel and why they oppose those who proclaim it. But I don't want to limit gospel opposition to those two main things that we see in 1 Corinthians. There are other sinful reasons, selfish reasons. You know, two weeks ago we learned that Elimus was probably motivated by a strong desire to preserve his job, preserve his power and his status. You know, he was the court astrologer, <clears throat> basically worked right underneath Sergius Paulus. He was like the spiritual advisor for Sergius Paulus and for his administration. And so if Sergius Paulus converted, if he gave his heart to Christ, if he became a believer, what need would Sergius Paulus have for Ann Landers or whoever it is that does the astrology? I don't know if it's her. She used to write something else. But there was somebody in the newspaper, right, a long time ago? What need would you have for an astrologer if you have Jesus Christ? The Word of God and the Holy Spirit become the believer's guide they have no use of astrology or false religion. Elimus would have been forced into early retirement. There's no doubt. This may be why, one of the reasons, primary reasons why he interfered with Paul and Barnabas. He may have thought of it as a stumbling block and foolishness as well. Whatever it is, he got up in the middle of them preaching and interrupted them and began to argue against them. Now let's pick back up in verse 9 to see what happened after the interruption. Look at your Bible. Acts 13, verse 9. <clears throat> Acts 13, verse 9 says, But Saul, who was also called Paul, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Who did he look at? Elimus. Elimus interrupted. Paul stops speaking and he looks at him intently. Notice how Luke wrote Saul, who was also called Paul. What you see here is a turning point, friends. For now on, the book of Acts, throughout the book of Acts, Luke will refer to Saul as Paul. We shall do the same. Paul was Saul's Roman or Latin name. He was actually a citizen of Rome. It is interesting that Luke chose to inform his readers, Theophilus, everyone who read this, including us. It's interesting that he chose to, to um, inform his readers of Saul's Latin name at this point in this historical narrative. I think he did so because he wanted his readers to see how Saul had come full circle. You think about back at the beginning of Acts, or not the beginning, but probably about chapter 8 or so. Saul began as a demonically controlled persecutor of the church. That was the Saul that most people in the region were familiar with. They knew Saul as this ruthless persecutor. And this had been years later on. And then here in our text, we see him as what? As a Holy Spirit-filled missionary, church planter, defender of the faith. By the grace and power of God, Saul had come full circle from persecutor to defender. Now, that's not to say that we haven't seen Paul or Saul preaching the gospel and defending the truth in prior chapters. We've seen him doing the ministry of the gospel. But here, there's a, just a critical point, I think, that Luke wants to illustrate, that this man had come full circle by the grace and power of God. That he started out really bad. Killing Christians, imprisoning them, persecuting them, chasing them out of Jerusalem, going to Damascus to destroy them. And now look, now he's standing, proclaiming the gospel before the highest ranked leader in that, on that entire island that had hundreds of thousands of people. He's proclaiming the gospel there and he's about to defend the truth against Elimus who certainly does not know what he's saying or he does. He's evil. I think Luke wants us to see the difference there that he'd come full circle. What a change in direction for Saul who is now called Paul. And you know it makes sense too that Paul's, Saul's Latin name was Paul, and he's really going to become the apostle to the Gentiles. So they'd be better for them to know him as Paul, a name they'd be familiar with, a Latin name. I think those are the reasons why. Now, pretty interesting stuff. What a transfer. What a change. Now, another cool thing is that if you examine every book after the book of Acts... From Romans through Revelation, you will see that the name Saul never again appears. It's gone. It's only Paul from now on. Now notice something else. This is extraordinarily exciting to me. Notice with me the fearlessness of Paul in the text. What's he doing? He's preaching the gospel and Elimus interrupts him. Elimus began to oppose the gospel. He began to contradict what Paul was teaching. Rather than ignoring the devilish heckler, rather than avoiding any conflict as so many do today, Paul stares him down. What does it say? He looked at him intently, stopped what he was doing and went, just put the beady eyes on him, gave him the stink eye, stared him down, looked him right in the face. 
He looked at him intently. Now, friends, this is the right way to deal with evil. Do not look to the left or to the right. Do not try to avoid it. Stare it down. That's what he did. Now, what possessed Paul to do this? The text says he was what? Filled with what? With who? The Holy Spirit. He was possessed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave him courage. The Holy Spirit made him bold. The Holy Spirit made him fearless. A Holy Spirit-filled follower of Jesus Christ is a lethal weapon in the hands of the Lord against demons and the principalities and all enemies of truth and righteousness. Amen. Paul was a well-equipped soldier. He was filled with the Holy Ghost, ready for battle. When the enemy charged, made himself known, he held his position, and what did he do? He stared it down. He looked at him intently. He didn't go, did he just say what I think he said? I'll just try to ignore him, and I'll just keep speaking. I'll pretend that that doesn't exist, and I'll just keep going. Because it'd be wrong for me to stop what I'm doing to correct him. No, he stopped and looked at him intently, stared it right in the eyes. But that's not all he did. Look at verse 10. It says, and he said, Paul said, oh man, look at this language. You son of the devil, you enemy of all... You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's what he said. Well, wait a minute, Paul. Where's your tolerance of Elimus' religious views? Elimus is entitled to his opinions, Paul. Where is your sensitivity to him? You can't be calling people sons of the devil and enemies of righteousness just because they have different beliefs than you. Tragically, this is how some respond to what Paul did here. They actually are not offended. This is incredible. They're not offended by what Elias did. They're not offended by what he did at all. They're actually offended. They call themselves Christians. They're offended by what Paul did. You can't say that to people. What an infringement upon their rights. Look at the language he used. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit. You're not full of anything good at all. And villainy. You are a villain against Christ. Will you not stop making crooked the paths of the Lord? How insensitive, how intolerant. Now, people take offense to what Paul did here. They say that Paul was not, for whatever reason, it's included in Scripture, but right here at this particular juncture in the Holy Writ, he was not acting like Jesus because Jesus would never address a person like this. How foolish. How foolish to think that Jesus would not or did not. Go back and reread the Gospels. Read Matthew 23. And also, did you miss the part about Paul being filled with the Holy Spirit? <laughs> a Holy Spirit? Old man would say something like that to another human being? Oh, yeah. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means to be like Jesus. 
Did you also, if that's your opinion that Paul was offensive here and he was way out of line, did you also miss the context of the passage? Paul did not walk up to Elimus on a street corner and confront him. He wasn't holding up a dumb sign at some particular walk where there's a bunch of people that believe something different. He wasn't on a soapbox with a megaphone. He didn't walk up to this guy on his turf and front him, call him these things. He didn't jump onto Elimus' Facebook page and launch a theological salvo along with a handful of sharp rebukes at him, did he? No. Paul did not invite himself into a conversation Elimus was having with someone else. Paul was not engaged in a theological debate with Elimus. Paul was invited by Sergius Paulus to come and preach the gospel. He was his guest. He was given the right to be there, and he was given the right to have the floor. He had the floor. He was the one chosen to speak. He was there speaking. He had the right to do so. Elimus interrupted Paul. He had no right to interrupt what was taking place. Now, at a physical level, Elimus had broken the lines of propriety. He was rude and obnoxious, no doubt. But at a spiritual level, Elimus had assaulted God. He was attempting to make the straight paths of God crooked. Paul, who was Sergius's guest and God's representative, had every right to rebuke Elimus with the highest rebuke he could think of. And he did so. Paul was right in what he did. And he was being like the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say to Simon Peter, who he was relatively close to, when Simon Peter tried to stop him from going to the cross? Hey, stop that. That's irritating. That's just not cool. I know you're a person with infinite worth and dignity, and I'm going to speak to you with the kindness of love. You're trying to stop me from going from the cross. Let's sit down and talk about this. Let's go get a latte. You know what? I'm going to be gentle with you. Oh, no, actually, this is what he said to Simon Peter. Get behind me, Satan! Exclamation point. Not get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan! You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's actually what he said to Simon Peter, who was close to him. Now, there's something interesting about this correction to Elimus. Don't ever mistake Jesus. He said hard things when he needed to say hard things. He gave a harsh rebuke when he needed to give a harsh rebuke. And he was gentle as a dove as well. There's different scenarios that play out where you use different means. There's a right way to correct somebody. There's a wrong way to do it. But there's something really spectacular, something beautiful. You may not be able to see it here, but there is love in the correction. If Paul ignored Elimus without saying anything to him, he would have left him in error. How is leaving a person in error that leads to hell loving them? How? How is not correcting error that leads to hell, broad road error, how is that loving someone, leaving them in it without saying anything? That is not love. That is to say, I despise you and I hope you perish. That's not love. To withhold correction means to show no love. 
It is to say, remain in your error, I hope you perish. Now many in the church today have jettisoned all forms of correction because they see correction as unloving. To them, Jesus never rebuked people or spoke harshly. Now you can get them to acknowledge that Jesus hammered the religious leaders here and there, especially Matthew 23. You can get them to acknowledge that to some degree. But this causes them to believe that harsh correction or rebuke is only for religious types, which Elimus was. But they believe the only people that Jesus ever spoke harshly to were the religious leaders. That's not true at all. You saw what he just said to Peter. I guess he was a religious leader, wasn't he? But you also saw him talk about the difficulty, or not the difficulty, but the massive demands on the disciple. If you follow me, you've got to take up your cross. You've got to eat in my flesh. Oh, these things were just joyful to hear. These things were hard truths. They were difficult truths. Now, Jesus didn't ride around on a tandem bike with a matching sweater to Peter, and they just loved everything. They wore pink matching sweaters. He didn't sip lattes. He was God, and he came on a mission, and he said what needed to be said. He was bold. He never held back. But unfortunately, so many in the church have jettisoned correction. They just think that it's unloving, no matter what. And if there's ever any correction to be done, it's only towards the Phil Bakers and the pastors and the elders. It should never be done towards the average people, regular folks. The fact of the matter is, a great number of churchmen are not interested in correction at all. But they do love and cherish tolerance. Tolerance is their highest virtue. And their view of tolerance includes no provision for correction. They must have missed passages like these, Proverbs 12, 1, which says, The person who loves correction loves knowledge, but anyone who hates a rebuke is stupid. It just says stupid right there. That's the word they use. Or how about these words about evil? Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Hey, evil. Listen to this one. I love this one. Psalm 97, 10. Oh, you who love the Lord, plainly says, hate evil. When people speak it, hate what they speak. When people live it out and act it out, cause harm to others, hate it. Hate the evil in your own life. Hate your own evil intentions. Hate evil. Pretty broad. I can't tell you how many times I have been verbally assaulted because just kind of read the Bible and say what it means plainly. Well, he's a hateful pastor. He's a hateful man. It is possible to be bold out of love. The Lord was. Paul was. You see, what he said was out of love, even though it's harsh, <coughs> difficult words, but there is love there. Paul did more, though. He stared Elimus down. He rebuked him as a servant of Satan, an enemy of righteousness, and then look at verse 11. Here comes the KO. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, 
and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. You might remember we talked about this some time ago, but the hand of the Lord means the power of the Lord. The Lord uses his mighty hand to exert his power. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the Lord using his hand to save and rescue people. Here, we see him using his hand to discipline, to punish. What was Elimus' punishment for his interruption, for his trying to lead Sergius Paulus away? The text says blindness. This is a fitting punishment for him. Elimus was a false prophet, false teacher, which means that he was a blind spiritual leader or blind guide. Every time he spoke on spiritual matters or practiced magic because he was a magician, he was leading people away from God. He caused people to remain in spiritual darkness because he did not teach the truth. God saw fit to blind him physically in an effort to show him that he was blind spiritually. You lead people away spiritually, you blind them from the truth, you make their paths crooked, I will remove your sight. The text says that a mist fell upon him. Paul and the other witnesses could actually see a mist envelop him, and the result was physical blindness. Luke tells us that he was rendered helpless because he had to rely on people to lead him around the city. God basically forced him to rely on others which was a sign to him that he was not fit to lead. You're blind. You've been leading people astray. Now I'm going to force you to be in a position where you're going to have to be led around by people and depend on them. You see the parallels? You see why blindness is a fitting discipline? No more leadership for Elimus. His new task was to follow if anyone would give him the time of day. This was a pretty devastating punishment if you think about it. Imagine having your sight taken away in a second. Imagine going from 100% free mobility, going where, to and fro, doing what you want, going and looking at half dome and all that, to having to be led by others, if you can find others to lead you. Imagine not being able to see your spouse or children or your fiancé, girlfriend, the birds on your porch, the sea. Your sight is gone. This would be horrible. But Elimus' punishment could have been much worse, friends. He could have been drowned like Pharaoh and his soldiers. He could have been torched like Nadab and Abihu. He could have been swallowed up like the sons of Korah. Elimus deserved the full wrath and justice of God. All sinners do. We do. And yet God allowed him to escape with only physical blindness. Why? Because God is merciful. He is slow to anger. He is long-suffering. Look at the middle of verse 11. Look at the middle of 11. This is spectacular. It says, you will be blind and unable to see the sun for what? For a time. You see that? Elimus' blindness was temporary, not permanent. Why? Because God, who is rich in mercy, gave him time to repent. 
I have no doubt that Elimus was able to connect all the dots. He was no dummy. Somehow he'd worked his way all the way up to Sergius Paulus. This guy was smart. He wasn't a complete nimrod. I believe he put all the dots together. Paul preached the gospel. He knew that. Elimus interfered. He recognized that he interfered. Paul stared him down. Paul rebuked him. Paul declared his punishment. Elimus went blind. It all happened to him. He was right there. He interfered. He got warned. He got blind. He was able to thread it. This happened because of what I did. Why, this guy was preaching this message about Jesus. He had to be able to connect these things. And I'd like to think that while he was blind, he lined up all the dots and then realized that he was wrong and Paul was right. I'd like to think that he turned from his sin and rebellion and put his trust in Jesus Christ. I'd love to believe that. I'd like to think that he became a, a servant, an evangelist for the gospel. The fact of the matter is we don't know what happened to him. Luke doesn't tell us. I wish he did. Don't you? Oh, Lord, make it so that after this time of discipline that he turned from his sin and placed his whole faith and trust in you, Jesus Christ, and became a mighty servant and soldier for you, Jesus, as Saul had done. Remember, he got blinded for a couple days. What did he do? Boy, he turned out to be just amazing, didn't he? Boy, that's my hope for this guy, but Luke's like, eh, not important for you to know about what happened to him. I wish you did, Luke. But he didn't, and I think I know why. Elimus is an important character in the Cyprus narrative. But God had actually set his sights higher than him. <laughs> yes, God loved Elimus. Yes, God showed him mercy. That is in the text. But Luke wants us to focus on a person of higher rank. One who actually exercised the highest level of power and influence in the land. One who could, because of his high position, potentially accomplish the maximum amount of good for the cause of Christ and the people of Cyprus. I'm talking about the ruler of the island, proconsul Sergius Paulus. According to Luke's account, Sergius Paulus was God's main focus here. This is plain to see in verse 12. Look at it with me. It's right there. What does it say? Isn't it beautiful? That's your quote in your bulletin today. It's just amazing. Look at that. If you're reading it in the ESV, you get the most accurate description. Just kidding. And there's a lot of good translations. But I like the ESV. Look at it with me. We should read it out loud. It says, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, <laughs> for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Man, one guy goes blind, and the other one is brought into the light and given sight. Isn't that amazing? I love how it says that he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Look at that little nugget right there. I love Luke's writing. He doesn't leave out any of the coolest little details, things that just cause me to go, your word is insane, God. 
I can't believe I can understand any of it. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Sergius Paulus marveled at the gospel. Right there in that moment, the gospel became that third thing that we see in 1 Corinthians. It became the power and wisdom of God to him. He marveled at the gospel. He marveled at the teaching of the Lord. That's the gospel, friends. And then God used the miracle to confirm the authenticity of his messengers and the truth of his word. The combination of that radical preaching of the gospel and that miracle, the combination, God used that combination to bring Sergius Paulus to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Like what MacArthur wrote right here. He says, there is no reason, apparently there was a controversy after this. People didn't believe and people still don't believe that Sergius Paulus became a legitimate real believer because of his Roman background or whatever. And people just love to doubt what God's word says. I say anyone who's a Christian, you wrestle with doubts and things. There's, there's truth in there that's hard. But really, you're going to reject what his word plainly says. He said this, there is no reason to doubt the genuineness of Sergius Paulus' belief. That he became a true Christian is suggested by some extra-biblical sources. The great 19th century archaeologist Sir William Ramsey argued from other literary sources that Sergia Paula, the proconsul's daughter, was a Christian, as was her son Gaius Carastanius Fronto, the first citizen of Pisidian Antioch to enter the Roman Senate. Basically what he's saying is this guy's family, they were a bunch of believers. And then MacArthur says, but apart from such external evidence, Luke's account is clear. And then he goes on to say this, the conversion of Sergius Paulus has been the main point of the whole Cyprus narrative. Pretty amazing. We wrap up this chapter. Let's do a little recap. Let's go back to the beginning, to Antioch. It was there that a handful of leaders came together and fasted and prayed about becoming a church that would send missionaries and church planters into the non-Jewish Gentile world. The Holy Spirit told them to appoint Saul, who became Paul, and Barnabas for the task. That's where we began in this chapter. The leaders continued to pray and fast. They then brought Paul and Barnabas before the church and laid hands on them. After that, the Holy Spirit did what? He sent them out. The two men traveled to the port city of uh, Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. They then landed in uh, Salamis, or Salamis and began to proclaim the gospel in the Jewish synagogues and in all the towns and villages. They preached their way all the way up to the capital city, Paphos. While in Paphos, they captured the attention of the island president, the lead senator, Sergius Paulus, who then invited them to preach in his court. They preached and were rudely interrupted by a false prophet who tried to blind Sergius Paulus from the truth. He, in return, was blinded, and Sergius Paulus was saved. Incredibly, all of this began with a handful of leaders and eager Christians in a new church who gave themselves wholeheartedly to the mission of Jesus Christ and to prayer and fasting about that mission. In so many ways, RHC is like the church at Antioch. 
In so many ways, the leaders of RHC are like Paul, Barnabas, Lucius, Simeon, and Manan. Those men, those leaders at Antioch, desired to send people out, their congregation and strategic missionaries, to desire to spread the gospel throughout all those regions. And that is the heart cry of your leadership staff here at RHC. We are like them. We desire to reach our community and beyond with the gospel just as they did. And I hope you know and understand that the ministry of RHC, primarily the teaching ministry, is about equipping you for the task of evangelism and church planning. That's why we assemble. Yeah, it's about Christian living. Yeah, it's about holiness. Yeah, it's about all those things. But you are being equipped and prepared for the gospel, for the ministry of the gospel. That's why we do what we do. That's why I, I spend all these hours every week writing sermons and praying and coming and presenting the gospel to you. Not so that you can just have a better life for yourself, which is one of the great benefits of the gospel. Not so that you can just relish and enjoy the grace of God yourself, but that you can impart that grace to others. That you would be a missionary in this community. Just as that church in Antioch was. We do what we do here for the purpose of making disciples who make disciples. When Paul was converted, the Lord commissioned him for gospel service. When he was blind and all that, the Lord spoke to him. His commission is our commission. Jesus said this, this to him as recorded in Acts 27, 17 to 18. Jesus said to him, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what Paul was sent to do. Incredibly, in our text, someone became blind for a season, but someone else was graciously given sight. Paul was fulfilling his mission. And friends, you need to understand that we are the sent ones. As Paul was sent, we have been sent. My prayer is that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that you would go out and proclaim the gospel, that you would, you would literally go out and tell people about the forgiveness <coughs> That is in Jesus Christ, the freedom, the liberty, the hope, the love, the grace, the mercy, the purpose, the abundantness of all that is in him, satisfaction, security, identity. It's all in him. My prayer is that you would go out and preach the gospel that proclaims those things. And when evil opposes you, that you stare at That you stare at him and that you correct it with the truth. Every scenario will be different. Some of them are going to require you son of the devil. And some of them are going to require, let's reason together. Let's talk. Let's discuss this. Be bold, church. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of courage and boldness. I'll close with a simple but great statement by Jim Stitzinger. I quote, The gospel is confrontational. Haven't we not read that? Man, he jacks people up, turns them on their head, 
but it is the power of salvation. It's the power to save. The gospel is confrontational. But he says this, but it's too important to let discomfort keep us from obedience. And that's the heart cry of this leadership for one another and for you. Yeah, it's tough. The gospel is going to set people on their head. But look at what happened with Sergius Paulus. Look at what happened with Paul. All these people, these examples. Look at what happened in your own life. It is the power to save. Be bold. It's too important to let discomfort keep us from obedience. Father, I lift up a time of communion. There might be some here that have yet to know you. They're walking in spiritual blindness. God, I pray by the power of the gospel, Jesus Christ, his finished work, his life, his death, his resurrection. I pray that that would prevail over the lives of those here that do not know you. God, save them, rescue them, as you did me. Sanctify your saints here, Lord, by the gospel. We're going to take communion in just a moment. We're going to celebrate your finished work, the work that you did. You brought us into a new, everlasting, incredible, nothing like it in the whole universe covenant. Covenant of love, grace, mercy, endless blessing. Covenant of relationship through Jesus Christ with you. The God who loves, the God who saves, the God who is just, creator. And may we take these elements and just celebrate what you've done for us. There are a whole lot of Sergius Pauluses in this room. May we all rejoice together in one accord. Thank you, Christ, for what you did. It's your work, Jesus, and these elements that we're going to celebrate with represent your work. We got nothing. It's all you. You spilt your blood. It washes over our sins. Your body was broken. We take these elements in remembrance of what you did. We walk out these doors liberated and free from sin. We have sight. Hallelujah. May we worship you during this time. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes.